This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Stephen Gale, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here to the Edinburgh International Book Festival this morning uh, for our event with our special guest, Nate Silver. Uh, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the support of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, um, a longtime partner of the festival, and we're very grateful for that support. Um, in 2008, Nate Silver correctly predicted the outcome in 49 of the 50 states in the US presidential election, as well as correctly predicting the results in all 35 Senate seats that were up for grabs that year. In 2012, he went one better and correctly predicted the results in all 50 states in the US presidential election. Uh, he began studying uh, by studying economics in Chicago um, and after that worked for four years as an economic consultant and then earned his living for a while playing online poker. <laughs> At the same time, he was developing his Pocota system for analyzing baseball performance and statistics. He worked as a baseball analyst uh, for several years, writing articles for, among others, ESPN.com, Sports Illustrated and The New York Times. And in 2008, he founded his blog, 538com, named after the US Electoral College, which was subsequently incorporated into the New York Times website. More recently, he has moved 538 to ESPN.com. Uh, he's published The Signal and the Noise, The Art and Science of Prediction, which we'll be talking about today. And his... Uh, forecasting continues to attract uh, a huge amount of media attention, most recently, as I'm sure you're aware, in this morning's Scotsman newspaper, um, which I'm sure we'll be coming to during the course of the hour that we have. Um, but first of all, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to make sure there's plenty of time for questions from the floor. Nate will be signing copies of his book in the signing tent adjoining this venue after the event. Please join me in welcoming Nate Silver. Could I, first of all, in 2012, with the US presidential election, just immediately before, immediately after, A, how confident were you in your forecasting? And B, how surprised, if you were, were you by the media reaction in the immediate aftermath? Well, first of all, let me say it's great to be in... in oh, sorry. <laughs> Hello? Is that better? Yes. <laughs> anyway, it's great to be in Edinburgh, where the technology always functions appropriately. Um, <laughs> but I, I do love Scotland very much, and I've been here before on, on recreation, but it's good to be back for the festival. Um, but yeah, it was a strange year in, in 2012. Um, in terms of the first question, how much confidence do I have? Um, you know, all our forecasts are expressed in terms of, of probabilities, so you know, the confidence will wax and wane based on the polls, and I think very carefully about how to convey uncertainty, both in terms of, 
of the math behind what's your margin of error in a forecast and also in terms of how you present it to a world that's not used to thinking probabilistically so much. Um, so by the time we got to election day last year, we had Obama with about a, a 91, I think, percent chance of winning the Electoral College. Um, so you're quite confident. I think some people also assume that if you say 90%, you mean 100%, and, and you don't. For example, there was a, a Senate race in, um, in North Dakota where we had the Democrat with only an 8% <clears throat> chance of winning, and, and she did win, right? So you know if you play poker, you know if you're kind of used to looking at odds in sports, for example, that those 1 in 10 probabilities come up, in fact, 1 out of 10 times over the long run. Um, but it was, it was quite something to see the controversy it generated yeah. in the media. I'd had the experience in 2008 where in that, in that campaign, um, as in many parts of the world um, in, in that year, you had a global financial crisis, so any incumbent party was in a great deal of trouble. And the U.S. president at the time, George W. Bush, was was very unpopular. Um, the Democrats were, were quite likely to win. Um, they were ahead almost from wire to wire in the polls, whereas was 2012 was much, was much closer. Um, you had an economy which has recovered a little bit better than in Scotland and the UK, but obviously still a lot of Americans without jobs. At the same time, you had some hint of progress. You had a fairly mediocre Republican candidate in Mitt Romney. Um, and the polls, for the most part, told a consistent story, where Obama had a, a, a small but, <clears throat> but consistent lead. And we have the Electoral College in the US, too, so there's much more data than you have here. And he was ahead in, in almost all the key sw states, almost all the way. So if you had some other event that would sway the outcome, then it could have turned out differently. But, um, but it was strange it was so controversial. And I feel here, even with the, with the kind of comment I made yesterday on the Scottish referendum, you know, it's, you're kind of pointing out the obvious in some respect. With that, it's like, well, you have a much wider margin there where depending on the poll, you look at the, the no side is ahead um, anywhere from, from seven or eight points to 30 points in some polls. So it's saying, well, you know, I'm going to kind of stake my lot on, on the favorite. And you can start to think about um, how volatile or stable might opinion be in a particular case. Um, in the US, we have, of course, history to guide us. You can go back and the model that I use is built on, on US elections since the Second World War. So you have some sense for when the polls lock in to become highly precise and highly accurate versus when is there more uncertainty the outcome still. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. People, another thing about, about, uh, about this country and England is that people, I think, are, are fairly rational and sane when they discuss politics. <laughs> it might not seem that way to you guys, but go spend, <laughs> go spend a week in the United States and turn on the TV. And it's, it's quite, even the criticism I got from some pro-independence blogs, right, was, was very well considered, I thought, as compared to some of the criticism I got from Republicans uh, in, in the US last year. Oh, some of that was vitriolic, wasn't it, and personal. It got, it got personal. There were you know, comments about you know, homophobic comments and comments about my credentials and everything else. So people I have learned, I think, to attack the messenger. Um, and one thing is about politics in the US, too, is there's not a big orientation toward empiricism, toward, toward truth, really. It's all, about what <laughs> it's all about what you can spin. And you have people who are kind of professional spin yeah. doctors, basically. And you find someone who's saying, it'd be one thing, by the way, if we had like a very complicated model and said, well, if you kind of jigger this switch and this way and that way and look at it this way, then maybe Obama's ahead. But it's like, no, you know, basically, you take an average of the polls and look at the key states that give you the Electoral College winning margin, and Obama's ahead. We can debate whether that means he's a 60% favorite or a 95% favorite, but, um, but every site that made some effort to, to look at the data systematically came to some version of the same conclusion. So, could you just talk a little about <coughs> what value forecasting adds to the political process? 
Um, well, I, maybe in politics it isn't so valuable. People have a chance to, to vote, and that's the important thing. Um, I do think that in science, that prediction is, yeah. is very important. Um, it's very intrinsic to the scientific method where you have a hypothesis, and you want to see, is this idea I have um, actually m match up to, to objective reality, right? So you, you hopefully have a hypothesis that's testable, and you perform an experiment or make a prediction, and then the real world plays out, and you see if you're right or not, and then you kind of gradually calibrate and hone your understanding of the world toward, toward this kind of reality check, so to speak. So again, it's kind of why I say in the US, where people in Washington are quite divorced from reality sometimes, the concept of making a, a forecast can seem quite foreign, but it's a very key tool um, in, in empirical science. Yeah. Um, could you talk about, you, you, you're quite critical in the book about punditry. You mentioned that the Georgetown cocktail parties and all of this sort of thing. Um, and you make the point that um, some people on TV shows and things like this uh, are for, they're saying what they think will happen based on, and they often talk about use phrases like gut instinct and things like this, um, and, and are discredited to some extent by, by your forecasting. Can you just talk a little about the value they add if they do? I think there are a couple different things going on. Uh, number one is kind of the, the news cycle. So kind of the more I've done this, the more I've become, I suppose, a, a critic of, of the news media coverage of politics in the yeah. US, um, where you want to have a splashy headline every day. And it sells more papers, gets more eyeballs online. If you have a, a back and forth race and narrative with, with comebacks and, and collapses. But for the most part, public opinion on, on many issues is pretty stable, especially in the US, where it is very partisan, which means that you know probably 90% of the country knows they're going to vote either Democratic or Republican just based on on the party labels. Um, of the remaining 10%, a lot are based, basing their vote on economic conditions. So you have a very, very narrow group of people, maybe 5% of people that really swing back and forth between the candidates. Um, but because you have so many polls that come out every day. I mentioned before where, where here in Scotland, the referendum, you have a wide variety of polls. They all show the no side ahead, but some by, by modest margins and some by overwhelming margins, right? And the best thing to do to a first approximation is to take an average of those unless you have some very strong reason to think that this methodology is right or wrong. Um, likewise, in the US, where with all the states, you might literally have several dozen polls come out every day and maybe a couple hundred polls in the course of a, of a week or, or 10 days. Um, so people tend to latch on to the three or four data points they like and ignoring the 96 that contradict <laughs> their hypothesis. And, so, yeah. and, and I think pundits tend to do the same thing, right? They want to get the headline and, and, um, and make a case for themselves, but it's not necessarily um, what the empirical reality would suggest of take a polling average and look at the bigger picture. You don't have that much movement from day to day. Um, and so it's less exciting, I think, in some ways. And that kind of clashes with the need to um, have punchy dialogue on television. But, but you know, our interest is in, in accuracy, really. Could I ask you about the reliability of polls? People, it, it's you know, been indicated that people don't always say how they're actually going to vote. They're actually embarrassed to admit they're going to vote Republican or they're going to vote Conservative, whatever it happens to be. Um, do you sort of fact? <laughs> Um, do, they, do you I mean, obviously you have margin for error, you talk about that, but is that, do you factor that in? Um, we assume that the polls are, are, the polling average is unbiased, right? Meaning we don't say, well, systematically they're skewed to one side or another. Um, but, you know, in the US there are a couple of things that, that we have going for us. Yeah. Um, number one is, as I said, because opinion's so divided, there are not really a lot of, of swing voters. Um, number two, because opinion's very strongly correlated with demographic 
characteristics um, that you can kind of, even if you have a, a raw sample of data that's not great, you can weight based on demographics and you know, for example, that um, an evangelical Christian is very likely to vote Republican, an African-American voter in a, in a city is very likely to vote Democratic, and so, um, so you can kind of calibrate things that way in a way that is advantageous. Um, but it's, it's, it's also a case where sooner or later we're going to have some, some year when the polls do badly. Uh, only about 10% of people respond to polls now in the United States. One other thing, by the way, about the U.S., people I think are, are very forthright about stating their opinion, um, so they don't mind kind of sharing with a, with a stranger what they might do. It's not true necessarily in, in all contexts. Um, there's a, a concept in England called the, uh, called the shy Tory factor. Yeah. I think where for a while the Tories were seen as kind of stodgy and not very fashionable, but people still you know, maybe would trust their, their leadership, and so they tended to underperform in the polls for for a period of time. Um, we haven't seen that in the US. There's not been any systematic bias over time toward Democrats or Republicans. You can also over adjust. Maybe one year you have, so this past year Obama actually beat his polls by a couple of points, but that can flip back and forth um, essentially at, at random over time. And do you factor in other data as well? Is it solely polling? or? I should say, so the presidential model does look at, um, at economic data yep. in addition to polling. And the philosophy is early on in a race, people haven't paid very much attention to the candidates. So, um, so the economy is the best proxy um, for, for the results. And also the fact that in the US we have a very strong, a very pro-incumbent culture. Um, people don't think of it. We think, oh, Americans are very kind of uh, rebellious and like to change things up. But incumbents win an overwhelming majority of the time um, in races for Congress and about you know, 70% of the time in races for, uh, for the presidency. It's partly because of, of the way campaigns occur. It's so expensive to run a campaign in the U.S. And if you are an incumbent, you have an expensive team in place. It's done things before. You have the ability to raise money to run ads. Um, it's hard to defeat that yeah. a lot of the time versus a country where you have more, more equal time. Um, I remember with the 2012 election, the, 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 again, some of the right-wing pundits were saying, well, of course Nate Silver forecasts that Obama win. He must, therefore, be a Democrat. You know? um, but can we talk about, fa leave, well, that's neither here nor there, but factoring in personal opinion. You talk about the art and the science of prediction, and presumably you can't be, one can't be 100% objective how do you factor out any personal? No, I, I don't think anyone's 100% <clears throat> objective about anything. And this term objectivity is used in an odd way in American journalism, where it means are you kind of quote from both sides. And that's not really objective. That's a way yeah. to kind of cover your ass and make sure you don't get in trouble necessarily. <laughs> um, but you know, objectivity in philosophy means is kind of means just the real world, basically, this kind of shared space that none of us have a monopoly on yeah. whatsoever. Um, but there are a couple things you, a couple of, of kind of reality checks you can give yourself. Um, Number one is that we, I designed this model in, in 2008, and then you make some minor revisions very early last year before the polling data becomes meaningful. Yeah. And you stick to that process, right? So, um, so there might be a day when there are a bunch of polls that I have a subjective view about come out, but I kind of uh, literally kind of, they automatically filter into this program. The program is designed in a way there is art in building the program, kind of how you weigh different factors. Um, but once you do it, you're not kind of sticking your finger out and saying, oh, I feel like this day, you know, Obama's doing well, so I'll tweak my forecast. No, it's all, it's all automated. I think that helps a lot. But also in, um, in the US, over the long run, each party wins elections about, about half the time. Um, so if you're always on one side or the other, then you, you're very likely doing, doing something wrong. And in, in 2010, for example, you had um, 
a year where you didn't have a presidential election, you had a midterm. Republicans did very well, and we had them having a, a very good year in the midterms. And believe me, then you got people saying, you know, why has Nate become a Republican? Um, <laughs> but I think people have trouble understanding that, um, that, yeah, you do have a point of view, but it shouldn't be like that hard intellectually. I think following sports also as well, right? Where yeah. maybe you're a, a um, I'll use a baseball analogy, maybe you're a Yankees fan, right? Um, but it shouldn't be that hard if the Yankees are 12 games behind the Red Sox with 15 days to go to say the Yankees are probably not going to win the championship that year. Um, in politics, people I think tend to try and bend and twist reality a little bit more, maybe aren't very self-aware of, of how their, their prior beliefs might affect their, their forecast. And also, I mean, economics as well, it seems. One of the things that's very striking in the book is you give an example, one example comes to mind about 38, there were some economists predicted a 38% chance of recession. This was in 2007 or 8. And you point out that statistically the country already was in recession. Yeah, so uh, one thing about the economy, it's hard to, first of all, economic forecasts, I mean, they make, they make political forecasters look good <laughs> by comparison. Uh, there's almost no ability to kind of forecast uh, uh, recessions more than about three to six months yeah. in advance and so lo and behold you have for example a whole currency union that people maybe didn't anticipate all the outcomes that might occur potentially but but yeah economic forecasting is very tricky in part because measuring an economy as complex as as that of the United Kingdom or the United States is, is tricky so kind of knowing where you're at in the present is often half the battle in forecasting in political data we have so many polls in the US you have a very good idea of where you are today and then you can at least have some hope of knowing where you are tomorrow. Um, with economic data, it's hard to actually measure all the jobs in the United States. Uh, even in Scotland, it would, be, it would be a challenge. With the new economy and so forth, people being self-employed. Um, with inflation, you actually have people go and kind of go to supermarkets and, and take the price of each good. It's a lot of data, and they're very good at what they do, but it's not a, a straightforward problem. You haven't thought about like working for one of the ratings agencies or something like that? No, I, so I critique the rating agencies in, in my book <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and that's a case where, where they have very arbitrary methods of kind of assigning uh, default rates to countries where with these mortgage-backed securities they had what was really a very new and novel uh, and very risky in retrospect types of instruments. And they said, well, you know, they seem safe. And the idea was that you have diversification, right? Yeah. So you have um, someone has a mortgage in New York, someone else in California, and they said, well, you might have a regional housing bubble, but, but they'll mitigate one another. You hedge your risk that way. When in fact, you look at the chart of housing prices in the US, you had a bubble of the likes of which we had never really really seen before. You can go back to kind of the, uh, the, the uh, tulip <laughs> bubble and things like that, and other kind of classic bubbles throughout history when things kind of go up that rapidly without any change in the fundamentals. So one thing about the US housing bubble in the 90s and the 2000s is that you didn't really have Americans becoming, becoming wealthier exactly. You didn't have the demographics changing that much. In contrast, after World War II in the United States, you had, um, it became a superpower. You had a lot more wealth in the country. You had a lot of people returning from war and wanting to move into the suburbs. So you had demographic shifts that, that allowed housing prices to go up, whereas in the 2000s it was all about speculation for the most part. So that's kind of one thing, even in election forecasting, where you say, well, you have data about what's happening in the here and now, kind of polling data, but how is it tied to, to the fundamentals? Um, and there in the housing bubble, you had housing prices going up. I think people have this tendency to assume that something that goes up tends to keep going up, whereas in, in investing, that's usually a bad approach, right? People often kind of uh, uh, buy low and sell high. Am I getting that wrong? Yeah, but they buy high, rather, and sell low, right? They assume, well, you know, the, the arrow's pointing upward, it's pointing green, so buy, 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 when in fact, that's usually when the market or any type of commodity is going to be overvalued instead. Yeah. 
How, how do you personally consume news on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, so I rely a lot on, on Twitter, <laughs> I suppose. Um, I follow several hundred people, and it kind of gives you a good conduit into a lot of different things. Um, I try and make sure I read in politics um, both conservative sites and, and liberal sites. Um, you know, there are other um, aggregators that kind of show you what the kind of hot story is each day, but there's some websites. I'll go to the New York Times myself, you know, almost every day, increasingly to the, to the Guardian and so forth as well, which is better and better coverage of, of American politics. But, you know, it's kind of my, my uh, it's my job to, to consume news. You kind yeah. of always, you know, I don't miss a lot of articles, yeah. really. You can get bored because oftentimes, as I said, nothing really happens. And I try and resist the temptation to make something out of, out of nothing. Yeah. Um, but I try and read, I try and read very widely. <laughs> yeah. Do you, in what ways do you think the internet has changed or is changing journalism more generally and the way things are reported in Indeed Pontifery? Um, well, in theory, the internet ought to make people more accountable, potentially, where if you say something, as I said about uh, the referendum, for example, yesterday, it's kind of blasted out instantly. Uh, and you can't hide from it, you can't shirk from it, also because data is so much more widely available now, where anyone can go, and almost all the data I use is publicly available. It's economic data published by the US government and polling data published in, in newspapers um, or on websites. Um, and so you kind of walk people through your process and say, look, this is not anything top secret I have, right? It's not based on insider information. It's based on public data. And oftentimes, that public data is more reliable than insider gossip, because the insider information is gossip a lot of the time. It's stuff that's given to you by someone who might have an incentive to uh, to spin you or someone who's kind of too close to the process. So another way to look at objectivity, it has a lot to do with, with how much distance do you have from a process. Are you removed from something? I think when you're kind of an, an insider politically, it kind of goes against the idea of actually having the point of view of a, of a neutral or unbiased observer when you're kind of in the room with all the political operatives who have a very jaded and jaundiced point of view on the race a lot of the time. I mentioned in the introduction that you've recently moved 538 from New York Times to ESPN. What's, what's the thinking behind that? What's your vision for developing 538 with ESPN? So the idea is that, uh, is that 538 will expand out to, to cover um, a, a wider range of topics, actually in some sense more like the book, where the book um, delves into economics and sports and politics and, and science and other things. Now, believe me, I'm not going to write about all this stuff myself, um, but we're going to hire um, hire a dozen uh, or more uh, data journalists and people who also present information visually and editors and managers um, to try and have a site that's kind of known as the first destination for, for data-driven or for, for, for data uh, journalism. Um, and, and there have been, obviously, I think, like I said, uh, The Guardian does a good job with this. Um, the Times, I think, has some talented people. But to say the whole approach is more, um, you know, we're kind of based in, in the numbers. We have a strong sense for empiricism when we're looking at usually, again, public data and not kind of insider information and gossip. I think it is journalism, so I use that kind of J word proudly. But it's not, it's not reporting as much. There are very good reporters at the Times, at the Washington Post, other periodicals. Um, but it's more our job to go one step um, beyond that, I suppose, where I say, well, here's all the information we have. Now, what does it, what does it actually mean? You know, um, how certain or uncertain might a future event be? So should you be worried about this? Or can you get on with your life, potentially? Um, one thing we noticed at, at 538 is that um, in the US especially, um, people who read politics news tend to be, tend to be older, um, mainly over the age of 55 
or 60. Um, our demographics were, were different. They were kind of younger, um, uh, very kind of online-centric. Um, so they looked almost more like sports fans. It was also a very male-dominated audience for some reason. So it's kind of like people who kind of, they want the score, right? They want the bottom line. They want the essential information. And they don't care about the gossip as much. Um, so I think that's kind of the approach that we're going to try and take to a lot of fields. Um, we're hoping to hire, as I said, some really um, talented men and women to help with this operation. So if you guys you know, know people who are looking for, for a job, send their resumes my way. Um, but it's going to be a challenge to kind of go and, and take, this, um, take this website and kind of make it into to, uh, a, a full-fledged um, um, kind of news website to, uh, to really expand things out quite a bit. You mentioned the, the Washington Post. and. and <clears throat> earlier, the New York Times as well. And it seems that the old print media, often you know, privately owned by one family or one organization, is going through a pretty tough time. Yeah. And just recently, just a week or so ago, we had Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, buying the Washington Post. What's your take on that? Where do you think he might take that? Well, I mean, you know, the newspaper business in the US is kind of subject to two um, countervailing trends, where on the one hand, you have obviously a move away from, um, from print to online. Um, the advertising margins are not as, as robust online as they were, at least in kind of the, the golden age of American print journalism. Um, on the other hand, um, maybe kind of contrary to what you would expect based on having this kind of wide array of sites you can look at, it's become very, very top-heavy now, where, um, where the New York Times, in terms of readership, including online readership and influence, um, has probably more than it ever has before, and likewise, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the handful of publications at the kind of top tier um, are actually moving up on the curve relative to everyone else. Whereas middle tier publications, I, I lived for many years in Chicago, the newspaper there, the Chicago Tribune, is, is really suffered quite a bit. They've laid off a lot of their best people. Um, people say, well, if I want the best possible script, I'll turn to the Times or the Journal or the Post. Right? I don't need my local paper as much anymore. So uh, for a paper like the Times, or the, or the post, then um, it's not so bad, really, I don't think, where you get um, the margins are lower, but you get kind of more traffic overall. Uh, and so sometimes you hear newspapers are run by, um, by these families, and they say, well, woe is me. You know, advertising margins are, are declining, so, so what can I do about it? I'm going to try and uh, uh, kind of trim gradually um, at the margin and cut down the staff and, and try not to lose money. Um, whereas for me, it's like I think if I, uh, I think someone like Jeff Bezos will find ways to actually turn the Washington Post back into a profitable mm -hmm. enterprise. Um, he's someone who's very good at understanding how you have traffic and you learn how to monetize that traffic better. So basically, I'd say I think a, a for-profit approach to journalism can be helpful to journalism and journalists if the revenue pie is growing. If you're kind of growing your revenues at 5% per year by being innovative and by knowing how to market your publication online, then that leads to a much larger budget for journalism in the long run. And when you say, well, we're, we're, we're not growing at all, we're resigned to the fact that we're shrinking every year and we're gonna trim a little bit and run a, a smaller profit margin or even a small, a small loss, I'd, I'd much rather uh, have a publication that I were running or that I were working for be growing instead. And I think a more aggressive mentality can, can help with that. It's one thing about working at the Times for, um, for three years is that um, because it's shrinking and not doing a lot of hiring, you don't have a lot of, of circulation of kind of fresh young um, talent and fresh young ideas, I think, um, are very helpful to the newsroom culture. Anyone who's kind of worked in the media at all knows that it's always been a field where um, where you work somewhere for a few years and then may, maybe go somewhere else. Um, it, it doesn't lead to the most 
secure career, but it means there's a lot of vitality and a lot of sharing of ideas and a lot of, of competition. I think, I think that's healthy, potentially. I, I should say also when I talk about kind of the business side of these operations that is separate from, from the quality of the editorial product from the quality of the people in, in the newsroom. So my critiques of the Post or the Times are not about the people in the newsroom. I think they run, I think Jill Abramson at the Times runs an incredibly great news product. Um, but I think sometimes the, the management can be, can be called into question a little bit more. Uh, one last question, and then maybe we'll open up to questions from, from the audience. Um, just looking ahead, uh, you know, you interviewed in the Scotsman today about the referendum next year. The US presidential election is 2016. At what point do you start collecting data for something like 2016? At what point does it become relevant? Um, so I think probably in, in, uh, in the spring of the election year. So it's very early. It's very early right now. So, um, so maybe a year out, maybe six months out. But really, it's after Labor Day in the US. So September, when you have a November election, when the polling data becomes highly meaningful instead. Um, of course, there are some things that we know. We know that very liberal states like Massachusetts and New York will almost for sure vote Democratic no matter what. We know that, uh, that Idaho and, and Alabama will almost certainly vote Republican instead. So there aren't as many swing voters, as I said, in the US as there are in some other um, first world countries. But, but yeah, um, one thing too, and this is kind of why I, I speak with more confidence to the Scottish referendum than kind of what the US election outcome will be, is that um, uh, campaigns where you have different parties tend to be a little bit more volatile than, than kind of opinion on, on public issues overall. Where um, one thing I've noticed in the polls here on the referendum is that ever since the wording for the referendum was chosen, I think it's something as simple as, you know, should Scotland become an independent country? Um, the polls have been very stable since then. People have, um, have opinions about it, they've already thought a lot about it, whereas when you have to pick a candidate, then people maybe decide more toward the end. It's not as much of an everyday occurrence as something as fundamental as, you know, should Scotland be um, independent from the rest of the UK? Yeah. Yeah. We take some questions, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, we have colleagues with uh, radio mics, ladies and gentlemen. It's very helpful if you let them come to you first um, so that uh, everybody else can hear the question. To start, there's somebody on the aisle here, and then second one is over there. Hello. Uh, another writer who's made a very big splash in the last few years in respect of predictive models, particularly relating to economics, is Nassim Taleb. And I wonder uh, what sort of uh, an intellectual engagement you may have uh, had with his ideas or any comments you have uh, uh, as to how your ideas may mesh or clash with his. Um, so I've met Talib once or twice. We got uh, food at his favorite Lebanese restaurant in, in New York, and he's a he's a he's an interesting and fun guy to hang out with. He's uh, his style is different than mine, whereas he's more of a, a polemicist, whereas I tend to be a little quieter. But philosophically, we actually I think have a lot in common. Um, and his skepticism of of um, the limits of of modeling, and I think he'll tell you that there are some contexts in which you know you know sports is an example. I'd say elections are an example where. Um, where things are very, are very linear, right? Um, if you make a wrong forecast, it'll be wrong by a couple points, but not some catastrophic outcome like you might have in the economy, where things are, are leveraged very much, and you have one thing that goes wrong in the housing sector in the US, other Western countries, and the whole economy is, is multiplied and kind of blown up in a different way. Um, so, um, and his idea of kind of being cautious about small sample sizes as well. The election's not too bad, but even then you only have 17, I think, American elections since World War II. Um, economic cycles, though, can last for, 
for years at a time. The economy is always, is always changing. So people are very confident about things based on recent history when there might not be enough data really to be confident about anything at all. You can often have um, fat tails, they're called, and black swans, where um, we like to have, and statistics things have a nice, gentle, normal distribution, um, um, where the tail outcomes occur very, very rarely. But it's not true in all fields. In many fields involving human behavior, like, um, like, uh, like economics or investing, where you have people hurting off one another, then sometimes everyone is kind of wrong at once. Then you have a very catastrophic result of black swan instead. So I very much um, kind of endorse, uh, endorse his work. The second one was over there, and then third one is over there. Yeah, it was over there. Uh, no, uh, lady over there. Well, it's a gentleman, but that's all right. Apologies. <laughs> Nate, you mentioned that a lot of your uh, reading is with Twitter, and I was wondering what you think of the website Floating Sheep and its ability to aggregate data and depict it in ways that provide perhaps not forecasts, but uh, analysis. What are your thoughts about floating sheep? So it's called floating sheep. <laughs> so I can't say I've heard of, of the website. Um, I, I do think in general, though, that the ability to depict data um, <clears throat> in ways that are visual and interactive is, is crucially important. Um, even if you look at people who are in academics, there have been surveys where um, if you show an academic some conclusion based on a regression analysis where it's all, it's all text and formulas, they often don't grasp um, the bigger picture. Whereas if you show something to people visually, they, uh, you know, I, I would say also in an evolutionary sense, uh, humans' visual acuity is, is very strong for kind of pattern detection and pattern recognition, sometimes overactive. But, um, but good data journalism involves, I think, good visualizations, among other things. If you talk to the people um, at the Times or the Guardian, places that are leaders in this, they, by the way, see themselves not just as artists, but also as as journalists, where you have a complex series of facts and circumstances, and how can you convey that in a way that you enhance people's understanding? Any type of model, any type of story, any type of visualization is a simplification of a complicated world. Um, so do you strike the right balance between actually making things simpler in a way that people can digest it more without, without becoming inaccurate, without kind of taking out the details that, that make reality reality. It's a tough balance to strike for, for anyone in this field, but having all the tools at your disposal, including, including good visualizations, interactive graphics, in addition uh, to the written word, I think is, is, is quite significant. It's here, um, and I then second row here. Um, I wanted to ask you about climate change predictions and um, how, how you um, work on these. And, um, you know, what your thoughts are on climate change? Uh, so, in, in the book, which you should all buy, of course, there's a, uh, <laughs> there's a rather long <clears throat> and fussy chapter on, on climate change. It's about, it's about 12,000 words. Um, and the reason I say this is because this is one thing where I think it's, it's maybe not so easy to simplify the, the debate, so to speak. Um, I would say the most essential facts are that um, we know what the greenhouse effect is. It's a fairly basic chemical reaction. It's been occurring for, for many years, but as you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, it tends to cause the planet to become, become warmer. And that, um, that's what scientists are, are quite certain about, um, have performed lots of experiments on. Um, what people are, are less sure about is exactly what the regional impacts might be, exactly how sensitive the climate is to, um, to warming, exactly how much you might have um, uh, effects that are mitigated <clears throat> or enhanced by other chemicals in the atmosphere like sulfur. So what the, the chapter kind of encourages 
people on the consensus side of science to do is say, you know, maybe you should kind of keep things relatively straightforward, right? Not try and blame every rainstorm or every hurricane on climate change. The evidence isn't that precise. But say, look, um, this has a lot of downside risk for, um, for the world. Um, it's, we're able to mitigate it, we think, but it's going to be harder if we don't do it sooner rather than later. Um, but the climate debate becomes very politicized in the US in particular. Uh, and what I say is that um, you don't want to get involved if you're a scientist in the street fight, right? You don't want to get involved in politics where no one really has an edge in the long run except for how well you can spin things. You want to say, look, we are on the side of scientific exploration here and scientific experiments and we, our hypothesis is going to be true, we think, with a high degree of confidence over the long run. Um, but also not in the short run, you're not, like I said, you don't want to blame every anomalous weather event on on climate change. It's not that precise thing. It's a long-term signal. It's a very important signal in the long term, but, but um, is outweighed in the short term by, by daily and seasonal weather fluctuations. There's a second row here, <coughs> third row, and then right up at the back there. You see the hand up? Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned that at ESPN.com you plan to branch out from just looking at politics to other to other fields. Are there any areas of public policy or indeed any areas at all that you feel are not well served by an analytical or empirical approach? You know, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, foreign policy topics are, <clears throat> are difficult probably. Um, you know, what I'd also say is that even within the realm of domestic politics, right, um, we really focus mostly on, on election outcomes and to some extent maybe the behavior of Congress. Um, things like who will Obama appoint to be his Secretary of State, right? Not really a lot that we can, we can add to that discussion. Um, it's all based on kind of inside reporting and information. So it's more, um, it's more not the kind of the broad subfield so much as what's your angle? And we want to have an angle where we really do, um, <clears throat> really do add value. And that our point of view is not, is not um, just oh, kind of we're throwing our, our lot in because here's a hot topic. We can ignore topics that I think don't cater to our strengths, whereas weighing in on things um, where we have an approach that we think is demonstrated and valid or interesting at the very least. So it's more, uh, it's more picking your battles within different fields. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious as to why you decided to move the site from the New York Times to ESPN. I think there was some discussion in the Times that you hadn't quite fitted in or was, was there stuff they could offer you at ESPN that they couldn't offer you at the Times? Well, the, the ESPN is offering to make this a much, a much bigger website so we can hire a lot, more, um, a lot more journalists and kind of grow the brand and expand things out. And, you know, I'm someone who, um, who I like change. And kind of every four years, like I said, I went from um, working as a consultant to playing poker to writing about baseball to having 538. And I feel like there's more of an opportunity to kind of do new and different things um, at ESPN. Um, also, with the Times, I mean, look, there are some conflicts, I think, in, in any newsroom. Um, uh, I think that's healthy to a degree. You have debates over methodology. You can have a, a pluralistic approach. But it was more a, a business side decision, where I think that, um, that ESPN is a, is a very well-run business. And I think the Times may be where you're thinking about, well, can we expand things out? Well, we'd, we'd love to, but you're at a business where, where they're not very good at monetizing content, where um, it's shrinking instead of growing. And that, I think, creates a conflict where you're making a, a long-term investment in your brand. I, I sold 538. It's not just a license deal. So you're looking at, who do I trust as a partner to help me realize this vision and hire other people who can help me execute on this? And, and um, they came out very well there. So even though it's a, a sports site, they're also affiliated with ABC News, a major network there, and they're very 
happy to have me talk about whichever topics we think are, are appropriate. So there's going to be some sports coverage, but it'll be, you know, maybe lots of politics still, lots of economics, go into health and education and different areas. And, and they kind of, uh, I trust their ability to give me a lot of freedom and a lot of resources to execute things in, in the right way. Yeah, in the middle there. And then gentleman in the front row here. Um, you've become globally famous for your ability to call the US election. Are you worried about the potentially hysterical reaction when you make your call about the next election? And related to that, have, the, have any of the politicians attempted to kind of co-opt you onto their team? To um, <coughs> well, to answer the, the first question, yeah, so I do get worried when um, I come here to, to Edinburgh, right, and you kind of, in a 30-minute interview, you make a kind of offhanded comment. I, I studied this a little bit, right, about the referendum, and it like kind of literally makes front page news, right? I think that's, uh, that's not the precedent I want to set exactly. If you read the book especially, it says that more often than not, people are, are too confident about their ability to make predictions. I think, again, election data is maybe one of the exceptions. Um, but yeah, you don't want to be seen as kind of the ma magic Svengali, right? It's the opposite, really, of, of my attitude. Um, in terms of how I've been approached by, by campaigns in the US, I mean, I, I have been, but I don't really have any interest in doing that. Um, if I wanted to make money, I'd go work for a bank or something instead. Um, I don't really enjoy the kind of the game of politics very much, although it's ironic I kind of cover it almost as sport, but I don't enjoy people who are trying to manipulate public opinion. I want to actually kind of measure it and convey that um, to help kind of inform people um, to the extent we can find ways to, to make that a commercial product that's great, but, but, um, but I don't want to be a political insider. I don't like that community, frankly, very much. And then the gentleman on the aisle over there. So historically, uh, correlation in data has been a major problem in making predictions. But emerging, given the methods you're employing, provenance of the data is another significant problem. So if I did a thought experiment and I put out the equivalent of a Google bomb for your data, put a lot of spurious data, how would 538 be able to discern, in this case, the noise from the signal? Well, so uh, it's a very good question, right? I think people think, well, you have, people talk about the term big data a lot. Um, whereas I really see there are three components to, to having uh, good data, having robust data. And one of them is you want to have a larger sample size, but you also want to have high quality data. Um, I talked before about economic data. It's hard to measure in real time. And if you don't have a good starting point, you can very rarely predict what's going to happen tomorrow if you don't know what's happening today. Um, there are also cases where you want data that's robust over a period of time, where if you had, for example, data on the US housing market from only during the housing bubble, the housing boom, you would have very incorrect impressions about how things might react when you have the market being stagnant or declining instead. So yeah, I think uh, you know, kind of having well-vetted and clean data is a hugely significant issue. Um, you can waste your time if you have uh, unreliable data and try and make too much of it. Um, in the context of polling, one thing that we're doing with my method, th the things that make it a bit more complicated, is that we're trying to remove the noise from, from data. Um, so for example, there are some polling firms in the US that have a persistent bias toward Republicans or Democrats. And so it might look like there's a lot of movement in the polls, um, when really it's just the, the GOP-leading firm has a poll and then the Democratic firm has a poll the next day, right? People are like, oh, there's been a big shift. It's like, no, kind of these particular polling firms always kind of say the same thing. And so taking that noise 
out of the data can help quite a bit. Um, likewise, in, in sports, you know, in baseball in the U.S., um, unlike in, in football here, um, all the stadiums are different sizes. So you might have a very, very small stadium where it's easy to hit home runs and have good offensive statistics. So you can adjust for that. If a guy moves from a small ballpark to a big ballpark, then his ability can be the same, but his stats will get worse. So you want to clean the noise up as much as you can, but you can't, you can't fake it. If you have unreliable data, you don't have enough data, then there's not really a good substitute for that. You just have to acknowledge that there's a higher margin for, um, for uncertainty than, than people might want. Yep. Um, a few years ago, a senior politician accused his uh, opponents of going around stirring up apathy. And uh, yeah. uh, I, I wondered whether uh, and voting levels in the UK recently have been pretty low. I just wondered how much important, how important uh, non-voting and apathy uh, is for your calculations. Well, the, the, the higher the turnout, the easier an election is to is to predict. Um, the reason being that that way you're just predicting one thing, how will people vote, and not, and not who will vote. But in a lot of contexts, actually, turnout's been up a little bit in the US in presidential years. But for example, in, in midterm elections, it's much lower. In primary elections, it's quite low. And so you have um, kind of famously unreliable polling, actually, in some cases. In 2008, for example, Barack Obama was supposed to um, to kind of uh, romp the Democratic nomination after winning Iowa, and there was this big upset in New Hampshire um, just a few days later. Um, and so, yeah, knowing what turnout is 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 important. You know, in countries where you have uh, you have very high levels of participation or mandatory voting, I know Australia, for example, the polling turnout's very high, um, and the polling's been more reliable there than um, than in the United Kingdom, where turnout's fairly high, but but as you said, is is declining a little bit. There was somebody just slightly further in. And then there's somebody about halfway out. Uh, I have a question to the quality of forecasts. Do you think that uh, the involvement of, uh, of money improves the quality of forecasts? So if uh, people have to put money to where their mouth is, uh, their yeah. forecasts are going to be better? Oh, for sure, right? If you have, I mean, people have different incentives when they make a forecast. And, and you know, for better or worse, at least the financial incentive is, is fairly transparent. <laughs> for the most part. So I got in trouble uh, uh, late last year offering to, to bet this kind of very hot-headed pundit in the US, Joe Scarborough, where he said, well, anyone who takes an election is anything other than 50-50 is a fool and an idiot, right? And I said, OK, well, um, since you're indifferent between these two outcomes, let's, let's make a $2,000 bet for, for charity. I'll just happen to take the Obama side, and you can have the Romney side, right? And of course, he, he refused the bet, and I was kind of scolded by the public editor at the New York Times for, for daring to bet in the newsroom, whereas for me, in, in, in most real-world context, you do have something on the line. If you're in, in, in business and you have a, a forecast of how a new product might do and, and you get that wrong, well, you might be out of business, right? And that's kind of the way that, that I think the real world works the most part. It's the way it worked when I used to play poker. You put your money where your mouth is. There's not as much, you know, I think uh, some uh, economists in the US said that betting is a tax on, on bullshit, basically, right? <laughs> uh, doesn't mean that people can't get things wrong. And, and obviously, you can have cases where people's, you know, by the way, if you look at the financial crisis, part of it is that you might have people who, who have perverse financial incentives, right? Where these rating agencies um, were getting paid whenever they rated one of these dubious mortgage-backed securities. So if you kind of follow the money, you can kind of follow the incentives <laughs> and at least know if people are, 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 have an incentive to be accurate or instead to, to mislead people instead. Um, 
To a Brit, uh, looking at the amount of money that's spent in the American elections, particularly on television advertising, leaving aside the nature of the advertising, is astonishing. And presumably the politicians believe this is money well spent. But is it value for money? And if it was so important, would you need to be including it in your modeling? So we, we do look at, uh, at fundraising um, in different types of races. So in races for the Congress, where you have 435 seats up every year, looking at how much money the campaigns are spending is a pretty useful indicator. Um, but that's a case where, where one campaign might spend a couple hundred thousand dollars and one might spend a million. In presidential elections, where one campaign's spending hundreds of millions and one spending a billion, you get diminishing returns. The, the 87th time you see the Mitt Romney ad in Ohio, you're probably not going to be persuaded very much if you haven't been the first 86 times instead. Um, one other conclusion that comes out of empirical academic research, um, which is true for most types of marketing, including in politics, is that advertising has a very short shelf life, where if you see an ad for, um, for a pizza company or something, you might kind of order a pizza the next few hours, but the next day you've already forgotten about it. And likewise, in politics, there's evidence that having ads in the very last week of the campaign, um, last few days, can matter. Um, but people's memories fade and they begin to discount advertising pretty heavily. So basically, I think, you know, in local races, races for the Congress, the, the, the finance is important. In presidential elections, the campaigns have, have plenty of ways to get their message out through um, advertising and through the news media. So, um, so maybe not as much big deal in presidential races as people sometimes imply. There's a lady here and then right up in the corner there, which will need to be the last one. The effect of the internet has been on people's resistance to, or at least indifference to, empiricism. Um, well, I mean, in politics, so there have been studies about what happens when you take people who are political partisans who have strong predispositions and they're given more access to information. And what happens, they tend to have their beliefs become even firmer because they, um, they check out the websites they like and kind of ignore, ignore the rest. And so, yeah, in theory, having more information should lead to more, um, more debate, but ultimately more consensus over time. But yeah, people kind of filter the information they, they consume a lot. And it's, it's problematic, I think, in, in different respects. You can kind of, there are ways to measure, for example, partisanship in the U.S. Congress, um, based on how often the parties agree, simply, um, and you can kind of trace back these big. There's been a big increase in partisanship, and you can almost trace it back to um, the dawn of cable news first, and the kind of the birth of of the internet. So it's it's unfortunate, I suppose. It's partly why I think we need people to be more um, more kind of educated in, in empiricism and kind of how you look at information. And, and I think you know, I think the instinct to be skeptical is a, is a useful one to a first approximation where you say, well, you went from having kind of um, a few major newspapers or a few major TV stations to an infinite amount of information, right? Um, and you maybe aren't being very aware as a consumer about how much now you're self-selecting the knowledge that you get. So to kind of force yourself uh, to look at information from the other side, right? To look at different points of view to understand that objectivity doesn't mean what journalists think it does. It means actually that the shared reality that, um, that we all have one narrow perspective on, um, that will help, but it will take some, some time, I think. In the short run, um, the internet seems to encourage uh, partisanship. Why did the 
Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in reality, I guess. Um, you know, I think the book makes a conditional statement, which is that um, if people are using a, a Bayesian approach, and what that means in this context is that they're able to, to revise their opinions based on evidence and, and have some ability to weigh evidence properly. Um, now, is that easy to do? Will people do that? Well, maybe not, right? But conditional on that occurring, then I think you do kind of merge toward, toward consensus in the end. I think you do see that in, in science. Um, you know, the term scientific consensus is a complicated term to define, but you do see a back and forth and people get things wrong all the time in science. Um, that's healthy as long as you keep running experiments and keep having debates and you gradually get rid of some of the wrong ideas and have a new idea that is usually better, but not always. And it takes time. It's an iterative process back and forth. Um, I don't think you see that as much in, in politics per se. Um, but, you know, I'd also say, look, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I try not to be kind of overconfident in, <laughs> in anything that I state. You try to you try and kind of state things as cautiously as you can. I think in in, um, in a book where you have a chance to kind of make a, a prolonged uh, argument, then then you kind of wind up being a bit firmer about some things. It's probably because I did all that thinking over the course of, of three and a half years in writing the book. Um, it is a you I think actually, by the way, today um, where we're so used to having kind of discourse on the internet and my blog is very kind of conversational, maybe more like, like this tone that we're having here than the tone in the book. Um, but the nice thing about a book is that it forces you to make a complete and coherent argument. You get to hold serve for a while. Um, I think it's an argument that's, that's a careful argument. There are you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of, of endnotes and footnotes. There's a lot of evidence that we cite. I talked to 100, 150 um, experts in different fields, so, um, but I think where we're so used to having the kind of snap conclusion that to step back and look at the bigger picture is, is a rare thing and I think makes um, books even more valuable today in some ways. I think the middle, maybe the kind of magazine feature article is what might get squeezed between these, these quicker takes and the importance of, of stepping back sometimes and, and trying to see the world from a different vantage point. And as I said, ladies and gentlemen, Nate will be signing copies of his book in the signing tent adjoining this venue. Apologies to those of you who didn't get to ask your question. There were many more hands up than we could fit into the time. Um, but would you please join me again in thanking our guest, Nate Silver. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.